years ago, our, our family went on a mission trip to Nashville, and while we, were, while we were there, we got to do some touristy type stuff, and my favorite part of that is when we went to the Hermitage, which is the historical site now um, where Andrew Jackson had his plantation back in the early to mid-19th century. And the name, the Hermitage, was actually the name that Jackson gave to the house he had built there. That's, that's it. And it was this lavish mansion that was a marvel of architecture in its day. Being a uh, former history teacher and current history dork, I uh, knew something of the, the history of Andrew Jackson and this house and place. And I knew that Andrew Jackson and his wife, Rachel, they, they would welcome guests who would just stay on the weekend, people they didn't know. This place was such a marvel. People would travel to this place east of Nashville and just stay there over the weekend. Uh, and it was, it was just, it's hard to overstate the, the sense of awe people had being in that house. Now, when we got there some years ago, I got to tell you, I was underwhelmed, just being honest. It, I had always read of these awestruck accounts of people being in this house, and it, it just didn't, it didn't meet the expectations my, my imagination had set for. Now, it is big. It's 104 by 54. That's the square footage. So it's over 5,000 square feet on the main floor. There's a second floor above it, and both those are under or over a cellar. So it's big. But, I, but by modern standards, it's pretty plain. There are, it's a rectangle. There are no extra roof lines or gables. This, the main hall where they would have like balls and receptions and whatnot, it wasn't all that big. And by our standards, just not that nice. In fact, I got to tell you, our houses today are nicer than this thing. They just are. They're not as big. But they're nicer than the most lavish house west of Appalachia in its day. And I realized on that trip, in that house, that my expectations for what was, what was nice, what was luxurious, they were set by my own luxurious lifestyle. And, and make no mistake, we all live luxurious lifestyles. Today's passage in James is about warning the rich. And the one problem we all bring to reading a warning like that is that no one thinks they're rich. <laughs> and that's true. Research tells us, and now remember what I always say about research. Anytime someone says, or most people who say research shows actually have not said, read any research. They just want to make you believe their point. But uh, Howard Dayton, 
cited some research, and the first book I'll recommend to you this morning is called Your Money Counts by Howard Dayton. He cites research in that book that says when social scientists survey people and ask them this question, how much money is made by people who are well off? Do you know what almost everyone answers? Everyone answers. People who are well off make between 10 and 30% more than I make. Everyone answers that. Even though that same person, if they would look backwards 15 years, they currently make between 10 and 30% more than they made back then, which means 15 years ago, they would have called their current state well off, rich, only now they think it's someone else. We are all rich. And I can prove it to you. If your household lives in a home where you are the only family that lives in that home, if in that home the floors are covered by some sort of flooring product that is not there for any reason except looks or comfort, if in that home you have multiple taps where you just manipulate a lever or a knob and all of the clean, fresh water you could ever hope to drink just flows right out. And then the stuff, the part you don't want to use just takes care of itself. It just disappears. But not just cold water. You turn the other knob or, 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 or work the lever the other way and all of the piping hot, so hot you can't keep your hands under you got to mix some cold in with it to survive all the hot water you could want flows right out unless your teenage daughter has recently been in the shower in which case wait 20 minutes and try again if you own multiple automobiles if you have money to spend on entertainment Stuff you, you, you don't need except that you enjoy. Things like TV, the internet. If you golf, if you hunt, if you fish, if you scrapbook, if you whatever else. If you have more concerns about the way your house looks, decor, color, than you have concerns about its structural integrity, that it's going to stand up to the wind and it's going to keep the rain out. If most or all of that is true about you, and I got news for you, good news, you are rich. If the wealthy are the ones who have more than almost everyone else, that's us. If that stuff's true about you, you have more than almost everyone walking this planet today and more than 99.9% .9 of the human beings who have ever lived on this planet. Andrew Jackson built the Hermitage, the average-sized American home was 840 square feet. Inside that 840 square feet, there were almost none of the amenities we just went through. And 
that 840 square feet housed an average of six people inside of it. Since that day, that square footage number has grown. It grew gradually for a while, but in our lifetimes, it has exploded. Since 1980, which for the adults in here, that's most, within most of our lifetimes, since 1980, according to the, the U.S. Census Bureau, the average-sized American home has grown by 150%. The average American home is two and a half times bigger than it was when I was little. Even while the average number of people living inside has decreased. Look here, all from the U.S. Census Bureau. In 1980, the average size American house was 1,600 square foot. Today, it's almost 2,500, 2,400 square feet. This is the number, average number of people who live in there. Today, the average home has only two and a half people living inside. One, because we're having smaller families. But two, it's like many of us, old empty nesters like me and Rachel are the only two living inside and some of us live alone. That means, if you do a little math, when Andrew Jackson built the Hermitage, the reason it was such a marvel is because most people lived in a house where there was about 140 square feet per person living in the house. Today, we have almost 1,000 square feet per person. And most of us think we need a bigger house. Now, I don't tell you that to tell you that you're wrong to live in the house you live in. I don't tell you that because uh, it's wrong to think you need more room. Full disclosure, we just put an addition on our house and we're the only two that live there. But I do tell you that so that you don't think this passage we're about to dive into is about someone else. Because if I don't convince you of that first, you will. This passage and these warnings are for me and they're for you. Because James is going to be warning the rich. And congratulations, you're one of us. Last week we began a new section of the book of James. From uh, James chapter 4, verse 13 through 5, 11, James talks about competing worldviews. His whole book is about growing in Christianity, growing in this faith of ours. And the point he's making in this section is you have to have the correct worldview to grow in this faith, to mature as a Christian. It's a part of our sanctification process and our our worldview, everyone has one, is the lens through which we see the world. It helps us determine what is important, what is vital, what is necessary, and what is unimportant, and what's not vital, and what's not necessary. C.S. Lewis said about his Christian worldview, I shared this, this quote last week too, he said, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. That is what a worldview does. It shapes the way we see 
everything. And Christianity has a worldview. The biblical worldview shapes the way we see things through the lens of the Scriptures. Now, last week, James talked about kind of the default worldview that everyone is born with, that it's just a self-focused, self-sufficient worldview. Where I decide what I want, what I feel like I want, and then what I have to do to get what I want. And that's my worldview. Today, he's going to talk about another part of that same self-focused, self-reliant worldview. And that part is, is this. It is the tendency for folks like us to see money to see what money can provide in terms of security, to see what money can provide as far as what it can buy us as an end in itself or as the giver of the things I feel like I want and I need. It so easily becomes a goal in itself, a measure of how I'm doing in life and family. That worldview is unbiblical. And it will lead to what James is really speaking against today, which is the misuse of money. Let's read our passage. We're in James chapter 5. That is the last passage, last chapter in uh, the book of James. James chapter 5 at the beginning reads this way. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted, and that rust will be a witness against you and and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days, and you have stored up your treasure. Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which has been withheld by you cries out against you. And the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. That's like the Lord of the armies. It doesn't have anything to do with the Sabbath. Different word. Verse 5. You have lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and put to death the righteous man who does not resist you. There's our passage. James begins in verse 1 by by striking what I want to call a very prophetic tone. And by that, I mean, verse 1 reads like something we could have read from an Old Testament prophet. The Old Testament prophets were constantly telling people to weep and to mourn over their condition, over their sin, the condition of their hearts, their separateness from God. And the Old Testament prophets we're constantly giving warnings to the rich. We could, lead, we could read warnings uh, uh, aimed at people with lots of money in Hosea, Amos, Micah, Joel, Habakkuk, and Zephaniah. But it's not just an Old Testament thing. In the New Testament, James today warns the rich. Uh, Paul, uh, when he taught about generosity, Warn the rich. And Jesus, over and over again in the Gospels, gave warnings similar to this. In fact, 
It's so common. Money might be the most common thing the Bible talks about. Did you know there are over 2,000 verses in the Bible that mention money or, or wealth or commodities, things of value? There's, that's way more verses than the, Bible, than the Bible talks about heaven and hell combined. By reading the Bible, we can tell God cares a great deal about what His people do with money. Their attitudes toward money and their attitudes toward people who don't have much of it. I think the reason for that goes back to the very first commandment in the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. That commandment and then the, the resulting ones that are against idolatry, those are very easy for us as moderns to read and think we don't have an issue with. I don't have any idols around my house. I know there's only one God. I know who He is. But God is a jealous God, as James has said. God has exclusive rights to be the provider of our joy, our hope, our identity, our acceptance, our purpose. And there's probably nothing that is a more common substitute for God in, in our pursuit of those things than money. In other words, money is so it's so easy for us as human beings to think what we really need to have joy, to have purpose, to be accepted, to feel secure. What we really actually need is more money. That is idolatry. James taught us in chapter 1 of this book, that every good and perfect gift is, come abo is from above. It comes down from the Father. And money is one of those things that so easily makes us think, yeah, He gives what's good, but what I really need is out there. It, it, it is silly to think if I just had more of what I already have, then I'll feel content. I'll be happy. I'll be whatever. That is why Jesus said things like these. Jesus said, I'll tell you the truth. It will be hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I say, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. That's a scary couple of verses. You know why? Because you're rich. And Jesus just said, it is hard for someone like you to gain eternal life, to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, this doesn't mean it's impossible. Good news for us rich folks. Because Jesus followed that up by saying, you know, with man that would be impossible, but all things are possible with God. This is the context in which he said that. The reason it's so hard for rich people to enter heaven is because the first, the, the, first prerequisite to eternal life 
is understanding I need a Savior to get me there, to understand I don't have what I need. And when we live in a society like ours where either we already have everything we could ever need or we can see it and think we can get it in our own self-sufficiency and we spend our, our time, our energy, and our resources chasing what we think we need and it's not Him. That's what makes it hard for rich folks like us to enter the kingdom of heaven because it's hard for us to understand we're actually poor and helpless without him. Elsewhere, Jesus taught, but woe to you who are rich, for you are receiving your comfort in full. For the person who spends their entire life chasing more and more and more comfort, even if they get it, it's like God says, I hope you enjoyed that for that brief moment. Because eternity awaits. We so easily misuse money. And now the reason James says you should weep and wail and mourn and cry because the reason he says we should mourn and cry is because, verses 2 and 3, James is going to explain that in our constant accumulation of wealth, we're actually going to realize we've been accumulating what is worthless. What could be more worthless than a watering can that just waters itself? That's what our wealth is. When we accumulate wealth to spend it on ourselves, if you can see this, these are open-toed galoshes, right? That's, that's pretty worthless. James, is, he's speaking about, in verses 2 and 3, eschatological judgment, or that day when you and I, when every person will stand before God, and we will have our lives judged. What did you do with the one life I gave? On that day, we're going to see how worthless many of the things we pursued actually were. And I want you to notice the tense of the verbs here. I want you to notice the way James writes this. He writes as if he's writing to wealthy people in his day. And we all know, like, the stuff that wealth is useful, right? Wealth is valuable. That's why it's wealth. We can use it for lots of stuff. But look at what James says. He writes this as if the wealth, the wealth he have in his day, it's already worthless. Look at what he says. He says, you're going to weep and wail because of the misery that's coming on you. Let me explain what it is. Your wealth has already rotted. The moths have already eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are already rusted. They're already corroded. It's already worthless. You just don't know it yet. And now your judgment, he says, that rust, that corrosion, the worthless nature of that stuff is going to be the witness against you as you stand before the Lord. It was worthless all along. This reminds me so much of a story Rachel and I like. It's found in John Piper's book, Don't Waste Your Life. He tells the story, he was in a waiting room, he was reading a Reader's Digest. Do you remember Reader's Digest? 
And he read this story, the success story of the American dream. And it's the story of this husband and wife. They worked hard. They invested well. And in their 50s, they retired to some beach somewhere. And then as you said, they, every morning they woke up, they had their coffee, and they hit the beach and collected seashells all morning long. And the story ended. And John Piper said, I was reading that. He turned the page waiting for more, and he realized that was it. And he wanted to scream at these people. You don't know what you're doing. You don't have all that for you. You're going to stand before God and He's going to say, what did you do with your one life? And that guy's going to say, look at my shells. Or it's like if we could go back in time. If suddenly you woke up tomorrow and you had quantum leaped if you know that old show, back into, you suddenly lived in Mississippi in 1864, which is during the Civil War. You would find an economy running or trying to run on Confederate currency. But you know the North is going to win the war, and you know that Confederate currency is going to be valueless next April. Would you spend that whole year selling everything you have of value to collect as much confederate currency as you could would you want to be would you want to have a house full of those confederate dollars of course not you know why because you would know this stuff is going to be worthless in a minute folks that is how most of us spend our lives here now Because I got news for you. This world and its system loses the war. The stuff we think is so valuable is going to be shown to be worthless. This is not me telling you the end is near. Like, like sell all your investments and buy gold. That's not what I'm telling you. Even the gold we we find so much value in now, we're going to make streets out of it where we're going. It's going to be what you wipe off your feet before you go into the house Jesus is building for you. The old saying, you can't take it with you. You've heard it, right? It's true, but it doesn't go nearly far enough. Because I got news for you. It's not just that we spend our lives amassing everything we can amass and then, oh, shucks, I can't take it with me. I sure wish I could. No, five seconds after you're dead, you wouldn't want that stuff if you could because it's going to be worthless. And it's even worth, worse than that. Because what we have spent our lives amassing that was our biggest prize and our biggest goals will be our biggest regret. We will regret having done it. One more thing James says here that I think bears comment is he tells his original audience that they, they have been hoarding wealth in the last days. James told his original audience, one of their problems is you're hoarding wealth and it's the last days. It's the final days. Now, James wrote that pushing 2,000 years ago now. 
He told his original audience, you're in the last days and look at you. And there's been something like 230,000 days since James said this was the last days. But you know what? It's been the last days for every one of them. Um, God hasn't told us everything we'd like to know about the end, but he's told us enough to know this. There's nothing else on God's calendar that needs to happen before God says it's time to begin the end. And we have no idea when the end will begin. I'm okay with this afternoon. But I do know this. I don't know how many days we have left. I don't know how many days you or I have left. But I do know this. However many days we have left, from an eternal perspective, are a snap. And we spend our whole lives to see how much we can accumulate before the snap snaps. In the last three verses, James speaks against what, I, what I'll call tight-fisted hoarding. Him, the, the obvious example in his day was landowners who need lots of farm workers to do their farm work and don't pay them well. Most of us, even in, this is as, as an agrarian a setting as we can find, and most of us aren't landowners. Uh, and even those of you who are don't need lots of workers to uh, work your fields anymore. It's just not the way it works. But this can be applied as, remember, we are the rich. How, how does this apply to us? For you, it may be not paying employee, employees well. I don't know. But it might just be that aversion to coming off any of your money. And I got to tell you, this one hits me right here. I'm as cheap as any guy in here. You know, money can be an idol very easily, but you don't have to have a lot of flash for money to be an idol. Like, I don't care what I drive. If you don't believe me, wave at me on the street and pay attention to what I'm driving when you see me, right? It's just not my thing. But I struggle with getting my security with how much I have saved. And that's not where my security comes from. My security is in the hands of someone that's way more secure than the FDIC, Sometimes it's, how do you treat that waitress that works for tips? Sometimes it is, how about this? Verse 5, you have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. Where I have lived for me to have more. And I have, he says, condemned and murdered the righteous person, someone who doesn't have much. Man, we are so financially blessed around here. I have this conversation all the time. Pastor, I'd like to help those in need. Tell me where there are some needs. And half the time, you know what I say? Like, I have to get back on you. Man, 
We work so hard to convince ourselves this world has fallen apart and we can't find needy people. We don't know how good we've got it. But, do you know what people need more than they need anything else? It ain't more money. They need to know Christ as their Savior. And there are places where we can invest what God has given that will help people know Jesus. None of this is to say that wealth is wrong or money is wrong. It's not. It's neutral. It's not good. It's not bad. Um, Some of Jesus' best friends, Lazarus, Mary, Martha, you can tell by reading the Gospels, they were wealthy. He, he uh, He didn't blast at them for being wealthy. Some people have been gifted with the skills and the opportunities to create and to manage wealth. And that is neither good nor bad. It is neutral. But those skills and those opportunity, opportunities, no matter how much of them we have, better be guided by, by biblical wisdom and that biblical worldview. One of the, the sayings Rachel and I have liked for a long time is God does not care if his people have money. God cares a great deal if money has his people. And he cares about how we invest what, we, what he has blessed us with. About this very passage, John Calvin, like the John Calvin, he wrote this, God has not appointed gold for rust, nor garments for moths, but on the contrary, he has designed them as aids and helps to human life. In other words, where James just said, you have no idea that what you are, what you are hoarding is going to be shown to be worthless. He didn't give it to you for you to to hoard it and so waste it and then you you die and you leave it to somebody else who does the same thing. It's supposed to be helping human life. And there's no greater way to help the human life than the spread of the gospel. This reminds me of another parable of Jesus where there's this farmer who's had this massive harvest, so much grain he can't fit it in his barns. You remember what he said? I got to tear these barns down, build some new barns so I can hold more. You know what Jesus called that guy? A fool. This very night, your life's going to be taken from you. And you can't take it with you and you won't wish you could. At issue is not how much we have. It is where do we get our security, our identity, Our acceptance, money is a lousy giver of those things, but it's a great barometer of our discipleship. You tell a lot about how fervently a heart pursues the Lord by looking at what that heart does with the money to which it's been entrusted. This passage reminds me of another famous book, the the, the second book I will uh, refer to you before we do communion by a guy named Randy Alcorn. It's called The Treasure principle has six main ideas and we're going to close i'm going to share those with you because it just goes so well with this passage this is all from randy alcorn first first principle god owns everything i am his money manager 
We are the managers of the assets God has entrusted, not given, to us. The stuff I call my stuff is God's stuff. It's not that God doesn't want me to have stuff. But I should ask, I wonder which one of God's houses God wants me to live in. I wonder which one of God's cars God wants me to drive. Because even when I have it, it's His. Number two, my heart always goes where I put God's money. Where your treasure is, your heart will follow. That can be negative, but that can be positive. Alcorn says, watch what happens when you reallocate your money from temporal to eternal things. Get involved in investing in kingdom things and see what that can do for your heart and your care for kingdom things. Third, heaven, not earth, is my home. We are citizens of a better country, a heavenly one. This is not the place we're going to live the longest. Fourth, he says, I should not live for the dot, but for the line. Randy Alcorn lays out time as if it is a timeline. It started whenever God started uh, time, and it ends in infinity in the future. That way, wherever we live on that line, we are one tiny pin dot on that line. Do I live and invest in the dot or the line? From the dot, our present life on earth extends a line that goes on forever, which is eternity in, in heaven or the heavens and the new earth. Five, giving is the only antidote to materialism. Giving is a joyful surrender to a greater person and a greater agenda. It dethrones me and exalts him. In giving, giving is where I say, I am going to take some of God's money and give it to something else he would love. It's a great recognition that my heart is controlled by the giver of all things. And finally, God prospers me not to raise my standard of living, but to raise my standard of giving. God gives us more money than we need so that we can give generously. Are you good and depressed and feeling lousy about yourself? Is my work here done? Hey, that was, that was not my purpose. It was not my purpose. Why are we talking about this? Because it's here. There's one reason why we go verse by verse through this book. So I can't skip the uncomfortable parts. If we were to look at the registers of our expenditures, what would that say about our discipleship? What would it say about where we try to get security, joy, purpose? And can we reallocate that to the giver of all things? Let's pray and we'll go to the table. Our Father, um, once again, James has found a place where we're guilty. He seems to be good at that. <laughs> Father, I just pray, I don't know where uh, this message hit uh, different people, but I know it hits us all because money is something that's just so in the forefront of our minds. It's important down here. Um, and Father, I just pray that you would stretch and grow us where you hit us today.
Uh, Show us what needs pruned, what needs pursued. Uh, That you might mature us in this Christianity thing. That's why we're reading the book of James. Have your way in us. Christ's name. Amen. Now, as our text to focus on, on the, uh, I thought I'd give you a little good news. Because James has been, James is tough, man. James like body slams me every week when I, when I study this. And I don't want you to come and listen to James and hear about how much growth I still need to grow. How far short I'm following what my discipleship ought to look like, ought to look like, and think, man, God must really not like me very much. No. Paul wrote to Titus about Jesus. He saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, not because of how good we are at managing God's money. He saved us because of his mercy. He saved us through convincing us to finally shape up and be better. No. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. He saved us. You know what we needed? Saved. You know what he did? He saved us. Based on what he did, not on what we do. Man, I want to grow in this thing. I want to be more like my Savior. But He saved me and He saved you and we were at our worst. And He loves us based on His righteousness and not ours. And I want to give you confidence so that Jesus said right before John 3, 16, which gets all the press, so that everyone who believes, Jesus said, will have eternal life. It doesn't say everyone who believes has a chance. We'll see. Do you believe in Jesus Christ? If so, you have eternal life in him. That's what we remember. This morning while uh, we meditate on communion, while we take the gospel and perform it, we take his body and his blood and put it inside of us. Let's focus on how sure we can be that he will save a wretch like me. Somebody who's not done money well or some of the other things we've been studying about. But he has done enough. Let's pray while the guys come forward. Our Father, we're so grateful that you have saved us. Because that's what we needed. You weren't waiting to see how good we could become, how close to being like Jesus we could make ourselves. You saved us by the washing of rebirth through faith in Christ. Thank you that you place us because of the blood of Christ and our faith in it, in his hands and no one can snatch us out of his hands. We need to grow in this faith but not so you will love us. You love us and you will grow us in this faith. Thank you for coming near to us. In Christ's name, amen.
that night uh, when Jesus gathered his disciples, the room he planned and prepared to share the Passover meal with them, he knew. He knew what those guys, his friends, would do. When things got difficult, they'd fall asleep when he asked them to stay up and pray. They would run away when he needed a friend. They would deny with curses they ever even knew him. He knew. So you know what he did before supper that night? He washed their feet. The same feet that would run away. Why? So that they and you and I would know it's not our goodness that brings him close to us. It's his. He knows and he loves you. After the foot washing ceremony was over, over, he took bread, he gave thanks, he broke it, he gave each disciple a little piece. He said, this is my body, broken for you, even though he knew. Do this in remembrance of him. Our Father, we know that you know how we failed this week, how we'll fail next. But we also know you keep your promises. We are here depending upon you to save us and to hold us. And we can be confident that you will. Thank you that no one can snatch us from your hand. Amen. Savior loves me. Why? Because he decided to. He will hold me fast. He will hold you fast. Why? Because justice has been satisfied. Because there's no more condemnation or punishment you deserve. It was poured out on one who didn't. The night he held up the cup, said it was the cup of a new covenant poured out for many that there might be forgiveness of sins. That's what we trust it does. And we do this in remembrance of him. Hey, thank you all for being here this morning. Listen, keep saving, it's wise. Keep investing, it's wise. But do it all from a biblical worldview. He cares what we do with what's his. Love you guys. See you next week.